Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Closet and Pocket podcast, where I cover everything you can wear on you and carry with you. My name is David, and I want to thank you so much for joining me here today, uh, either as a repeat listener if you started listening in season one, or as a new joiner if uh, this first episode of the second season is your first time uh, checking out the show. Now, I know that we are well into 2020 at this point, uh, but since it has been some time since I released my last episode, I do want to say that I hope the new year started well uh, and productively for you and that everything is going great generally. Now, before I jump into the show, I do want to share some exciting news with you that has to do with the uh, longer than expected break I took between season one and season two. So in that time, I wrote a book. That's right. I wrote a whole book, uh, which does have to do with this podcast, which is why I'm bringing it up here. So launching the show last year taught me an enormous amount of things, particularly in how to do this as efficiently as possible. Now, I've long been interested in the concept of uh, lean entrepreneurship, and uh, this particular project, so the Closet and Pocket podcast, allowed me to hone that approach even further. So in the process of putting the the show together, I assumed there were others out there looking to get a podcast off the ground in the same way, uh, because podcasts are very popular now, a lot of people want to do one. Uh, but they may not want to or even have uh, the ability to spend the, spend the funds to get fancy equipment, fancy software. So I wanted to address that market, but I also wanted to come up with some creative ways to market the, the show itself, Closet and Pocket. And so I felt like this would be a good way to hit both things at the same time. And uh, the result uh, is a book which is called How to Start a Podcast for Less Than $30, Including the Cost of This Book. And I will post the link to that in the show notes. So please do check it out if you're interested. Now, before I get into the show again, just a couple of messages from some uh, unofficial sponsors. So key to my lean approach to podcasting has been uh, using Fiverr, since it allows me to focus not only on what I'm good at, uh, but really just outsource the, the rest for relatively little money. So discovering Fiverr a few years back really changed how I approached personal projects and made it much more likely that I complete them. So it's to the point now where for any task that comes up, my first reflex is to price it out on Fiverr so I can weigh it out against the cost of my time. If you're not aware of Fiverr, you've never used it, it really is a huge, huge productivity booster. And uh, if you haven't checked it out, I really would love for you to uh, visit the site and look at the services on offer there via the link in the show notes. Uh, Even though Fiverr does not sponsor the show directly, uh, if you do become a first-time buyer off that link, Uh, I do get a contribution from Fiverr, which helps support the show. So thank you very much in advance. And finally, one other, um, I guess you could call it sponsor, but not sponsor of the show, is a service called TransferWise. Now, we're talking uh, Fiverr, which involves money transfers through the site, obviously, but still there's obviously money changing hands. And when we talk about uh, the, the goods and products on my show, some of them may come from overseas, some of them may cost more or less money. And so this got me thinking, you know, what are some other products that I use and services I use that might be interesting to my audience? And one of them is called uh, TransferWise. So I am uh, not an American national. I had a big project I had to do overseas a couple years back, which required some uh, euro currency. And I was just very discouraged to find that going through the traditional banks was very expensive. It took a lot of time. It was cumbersome. And if you didn't have a bank account on the other end, which I didn't at the time, Uh, It just made the whole process very, very difficult. So through some research, I found a service called TransferWise, um, and it basically solves all of the problems I just mentioned. You get super quick transfers. uh, Everything's done on a fee fee basis, and then I think there's a percentage uh, for larger transfers. But you basically get very close to the exchange rate, super quick transfers. uh, You can access your money from anywhere. 
Uh, and you can even get a debit card to pull cash. Uh, I have one to pull out in euros now. So it's a, a very, very useful service. If you deal with foreign currencies a lot, uh, you need access to currencies other than the one you use, please do check out uh, TransferWise. And again, I'll post a link to that in the show notes. If you sign up and transfer a certain amount of money into your account, uh, I do get a portion, I'm sorry, I do get a contribution from TransferWise that helps support the show. So hopefully it's of use to you. Uh, hopefully you're able to get some uh, some use out of that service. And uh, I want to thank you again for your continued support of the show. Okay, so with that out of the way, I want to jump into the topic of today's show, which is Growing Up with Tommy Hilfiger. So I'm 11 episodes in now, but I still think the show is in its relative infancy, which means that I still... Uh, want to experiment and can experiment with different ideas to find out what really connects with the audience. And one of the ideas I've wanted to try out really since the beginning is what I'm loosely referring to as a brand story. Now, I hesitated using that in the title of the show uh, because it does come across as something that you know I was given money for. And that's not the case at all. I have to stress that what I'm going to say in this episode and perhaps similar ones in the future is not sponsored in any way and I receive uh, no contribution for coverage of the brands I have in mind. Rather, the idea behind this format is pretty simple. Now, I know that, uh, like me, you have probably been impacted by brands and products throughout the course of our lives. And we all have childhood memories of you know, eating Cheerios, for example, or uh, you know, eating a Pizza Hut pizza, something like that, right? Anything. And I would imagine that some of those brands have actually been, you know, very pivotable, pivotal rather, in uh, in shaping your tastes. And you may even have some very happy memories associated with them. And of course, here I'm switching now from you know away from food towards clothing, specifically uh, accessories, that type of thing. But what I want to do here is unpack the brands that have marked me personally. Uh, and do that by covering the following four sections. So first, I want to give a brief history of the brand, uh, of course, without spending too much time on this, since all of that material is, is easily available online. The second thing I want to do is go over what I think personally are some of the brand's iconic pieces and products, and then how the perception of the brand has changed over time as those pieces were released. The third uh, part of this format will then be explaining why the brand is so important to me. So taking the brand's history, the brand's pieces, and then really uh, overlaying kind of my childhood or my adolescence or whatever the time period was over that to explain to you why it's been so meaningful to me to have that brand in my life. And then finally, I want to finish up with my current assessment of the brand, uh, cover it, uh, cover how I view it in today's context. Uh, as well as its outlook for the future, and really the part, uh, if it has any at all, uh, to play in my life, given that I may be in a very different place from when I first uh, kind of stumbled on or deliberately found the brand back at the time. So way back in the first episode of the show, I told you that my interest in fashion and clothing goes all the way back to middle school. And specifically, 13-year-old me was obsessed with two brands. Those were Nike and Tommy Hilfiger. Now, Nike may show up at some point, but uh, let's be honest, it's more of a juggernaut now than it was even back then, you know, 20 years ago, uh, to be more than 20 years ago, right? So for me, it's not particularly interesting. What is really interesting to me is to revisit the other brand, which is Tommy Hilfiger. So what I want to do today, 
is cover what it was like growing up with Tommy Hilfiger clothing, uh, fragrance, just the brand itself, how it was growing up with Tommy Hilfiger in uh, the mid to late 90s. So let's get into it. So let's start with what's most straightforward, the history of Tommy Hilfiger, the brand. Now, I'll post uh, the link to the Wikipedia page in the show notes uh, for you to refer back to because what I will say is that with this brand and really the other ones that I'm going to cover if this format goes over well, is that they're successful and because they're successful, there are a lot of milestones uh, that they have achieved and there was a lot leading up to that success. And so the challenge here is to pick out what I think is kind of most pivotal in the history of uh, the brand in question, and here particularly, not just the brand, but Tommy Hilfiger, the man. So really what I'm covering are the highlights, and I definitely encourage you to check out the supporting material in the show notes. But let's start from the beginning. So Thomas Jacob Hilfiger was born in Elmira, New York on March 24th, 1951. It seems that from early on, he wanted to skip uh, the traditional paths that would be kind of put forth to someone at the time. Uh, and actually, he started his first entrepreneurial venture very young, apparently with what were his life savings, uh, to open a store in 1971 called The People's Place. And this was after having spent some time uh, working in retail in the, the late 60s. So his kind of angle, if you can call it that, was to uh, hustle to stock the store by driving to New York to acquire pieces that he considered cool uh, that were not available at the time. So you can imagine back then, there was no Amazon uh, Elmira was probably, you know, very, well, obviously was very small compared to New York. And so it just wasn't straightforward to have the latest fashions and trends come from the big city to where he lived. So the, the Wikipedia page says that uh, his merchandise consisted of uh, bell bottoms, peasant blouses, and there was just a heavy um, accent on denim. So throughout the course of uh, Tommy Hilfiger's life and, and the brand's kind of history, music was a big influence. And you get the impression that the styles that were big in music at the time were also influencing the, the choices of merchandise that Tommy Hilfiger was, was bringing in. And apparently, it got to the point where the store was beyond just a store. Uh, it was also a place where there were concerts, uh, it sold records. And so it seems to me like this is very much the beginning of, uh, you know, what he'd want to build later on, which is a, a lifestyle brand, right? So I don't know how much this concept was um, around generally at the time, but certainly it wouldn't have been obvious, I don't think, uh, looking back, you know, 50 years now, uh, to have a store do something other than just sell clothes. Now, unfortunately, uh, the store did go bankrupt, but it's important to say that this was not just a store at the time. I mean, my understanding is it had grown to multiple locations, but uh, apparently just was not able to, to stay afloat. And that's because of, I think, what, you know, what I've gathered from the research is that he probably said, well, I, I did, just didn't have the business knowledge. And so that was one of the things he discovered on this journey was this desire to kind of beef up his business skills. But he also discovered something more on the artistic side, and that's that he really liked designing his own clothes. So it wasn't enough at that point just to go out and source merchandise from elsewhere. He really wanted to design his own product. So those two realizations uh, that, you know, he wanted to design his own product and he also wanted to uh, strengthen his business fundamentals uh, really paved the way for what was coming next. So Tommy Hilfiger enrolled in some classes, um, also worked at some other uh, retail companies. 
And then my understanding is that he established a string of other companies after the People's Place. And all of this really led to the, the topic of today's show, which is the founding of Tommy Hilfiger, the brand, uh, in 1985. And this was with the backing of an investor um, group, individual and group, called the Merjani, the Merjani Group. And apparently the Merjani Group uh, was also the group that brought uh, Gloria Vanderbilt jeans to the masses. So I think one of the first instances of designer jeans. So you can see the trajectory slow and steady, but at the same time, uh, you know, Tommy Hilfiger started early and at a relatively young age had already gotten some backing to start his own uh, brand. So this actually takes us to a very pivotal moment in his career, uh, which is what I think you could accurately call sort of the inflection point. So the brand started in 1985, was still trying to build up steam, and uh, Tommy Hilfiger needed to do some marketing. So in 1986, uh, he was approached by a very famous ad man uh, named George Lois, who came to him with the concept of a big billboard in uh, Manhattan that basically looked like um, Hangman, like fill in the blanks. And it basically had the letters that came up with the, or that would spell out the names, uh, Ralph Lauren, Perry Ellis, uh, Calvin Klein, and then Tommy Hilfiger. So the idea was that Tommy Hilfiger was going to come in, uh, put his flag in the ground and say, you know what? All these guys, they're here, that's great, but I'm here to uh, make room for me. Now, as I'm telling the story, I understand that it probably sounds like he was you know, very brash, the stereotypical entrepreneur that wanted to make his mark. But that's really not how it worked out. Apparently, he was uh, very self-conscious about doing this and even had some regret uh, after the billboard kind of went live in public. But uh, long story short, uh, it did go very well. He did get a, a big boost in notoriety from this. And, uh, and it basically achieved the impact he was looking for, which was for relatively little money and a low-time investment, just really put his, his name out there, his brand out there, and get people talking. Now, from that point on, things went well for the brand uh, and the man throughout the 90s with boutique openings and a huge boost in mainstream appeal that I'll get, late, later, I'll get to later on. Uh, and then an award in 1995 for menswear designer of the year by the Council of Fashion Designers of America. Unfortunately, this is another pivotal moment. Uh, during the 90s, he also suffered what I can only assume uh, had to have been, I mean, the, the worst, one of the worst professional moments, if not the worst professional moments of his life, when a rumor was started uh, in what I would consider to be the early days of the internet as used by the public, that he had been invited uh, as a guest on the Oprah Winfrey show and then made some very racist comments about his clothes and the people who wore them. So this was in the fall of 1996. This has since been debunked multiple times by multiple sources, and there's a link to this uh, in the show notes. But that link I'm posting to was uh, for an article that was that appeared, I think, in the, la- the latter part of this decade, right? So the fact that it is still being talked about at that point, 20 years after it happened, uh, the fact that it is still dogging Tommy Hilfiger tells you just how problematic this rumor was. And you can imagine that at the time, debunking something like this, when you didn't have ways of communicating directly with your consumers, when you probably didn't have as much control over the image that was put out, um, it must have been very tough. And I think that probably contributes to the fact that this rumor is still ongoing today. Nevertheless, the rumors were addressed as as false and partly by Oprah herself, uh, which was great for Tommy Hilfiger, the man and the brand. And success has continued uh, for the the company, certainly throughout the rest of the 90s, which I consider to be the brand's cultural heyday. Since then, uh, 
I don't know that there was too much going on during the 2000s. And really, uh, I can only list two final significant uh, milestones, at least in my mind. And they relate more to the business side rather than the, the cultural impact the brand has had. So in uh, 2007, a deal was reached with Macy's to sell exclusively through them. Uh, having said that, uh, you can obviously buy the clothing through Tommy branded boutiques and outlets and, of course, on the website. One thing I did find interesting was that you can buy Tommy Hilfiger clothing through Amazon. And I found an article that stated uh, that at some point recently, Amazon actually had more SKUs or was selling through more SKUs of Tommy Hilfiger than the traditional kind of brick and mortar outlets. So I couldn't confirm uh, whether or not this exclusivity deal with Macy's was still in place. But um, even you know, even were it still in place, it seems like obviously you can get the clothing elsewhere uh, through other outlets. So if anyone has any thoughts on that, please drop me a line in the comments or through email. But that was the first uh, of the two kind of final milestones uh, as I see them. The second big event was that uh, Phillips Van Heusen or PVH bought the brand in March 2010 for $3 billion. The irony here uh, is that, you know, beyond the money, which I'm sure made Tom figure quite happy, uh, was that it turns out that PVH also owns uh, Calvin Klein. So you can imagine if only a young Tommy Hilfiger could have known that when he uh, was first approached for the billboard idea, he might have been a lot less hesitant to do it. So it's an interesting twist of uh, irony, but uh, that was the, the, second big, um, the second kind of big business event and really what I consider to be the last big moment for the brand uh, in recent memory. So the business highlights, of course, are interesting. But what allowed all of those things to happen, so what allowed the business to grow, what allowed Tommy Hilfiger, the man and the brand, to, to build on, subs, or on previous successes, uh, especially during the 90s, were the iconic ad campaigns, the iconic moments, and the iconic styles. So let's just go right ahead and jump into the next part of the show where I'll look at uh, examples of all of those and uh, discuss how I think those made an impact for the brand on the, in the broader kind of... Uh, cultural uh, landscape of the uh, the mid-90s. When we talk about iconic pieces, you know, Tommy Hilfiger is interesting in the sense that it's not a brand I would immediately identify with a product family or, or a category, such as Levi's with denim, uh, or if we look at a direct peer that's for sure going to come up more times in this uh, episode, Ralph Lauren and the polo shirt. Rather, I think Tommy gets its iconic status through general imagery, and certain very discrete pieces. And even those pieces, I think the, the circumstances in which they appeared uh, contributed just as much to the iconic status as the items themselves. So let's start with the logo. You know, I know it seems redundant uh, or circular to say that a logo is iconic. You know, if a brand is iconic, the logo should be part and parcel with that. And yet, the Tommy Hilfiger flag logo truly is an icon. If you grew up in the 90s, not only do you remember the logo being everywhere, you also remember the endless spoofs and parodies. You know, in my mind, uh, there's one that uh, Beavis and Butthead did, uh, or I say did, it was Mike Judge, but it was, you know, Tommy, pull my finger. Uh, so very Beavis and Butthead. But I think even now, if you go to any tourist store in a foreign city, uh, especially kind of the more beachy areas, you will probably find a riff on the Tommy logo, where instead of Tommy Hilfiger, it's the name of the city and then the country. So, I mean, even now... It's something that shows up uh, in unofficial terms. Now, I am no streetwear historian, but I do believe I can make a case that, one, uh, the mid-90s were a golden era for streetwear, buoyed by the increasing ubiquity of hip-hop and the artists involved in the genre. 
Second point is I believe that you can draw a straight line from that era with its emphasis on uh, flash generally and big logos to the streetwear movement of today uh, with a focus on hype and flexing on the next person, uh, again, with large logos and loud and colorful clothing. In that time, so this is the mid-90s now, the Tommy logo was everywhere and the designer's decision to lean heavily into the use of that icon, as well as actively courting hip-hop stars, were huge in elevating the brand and the logo. And as a side note, you know, this made the, the rumors of racism all the more ridiculous because Tommy Hilfiger was actively courting uh, the people who, was, who he was supposedly uh, putting down. So turning now back to iconic pieces of individual clothing, which were very much in line with this theme of you know, loud flag logos and hip-hop, uh, there are several pieces from my childhood that I can remember vividly, and I think that others who were around that time would as well. Uh, so here are the two I'm thinking of. The first is uh, the rugby shirt that Snoop Dogg wore on SNL. This was in 1994. I believe and it's very easy for you to Google an image of that if you'd like to see it. Uh, the second one, and I think this is even more of an icon, is the uh, the flag logo tube top that Aaliyah wore in ad campaigns for Tommy Jeans. Uh, this is one I can link to in the show notes, but trust me, if you don't think you know what I'm talking about, you do, and you will realize that as soon as you see this picture. So, you know, beyond clothes, if we're talking iconic products from Tommy, uh, we have to mention his first fragrance, Tommy for Man and the Associated Tommy Girl which were released in 1995 uh, and 1996, respectively. Uh, The Tommy uh, for Men cologne in particular holds a special place for me because it was one of the the first Tommy items that I could realistically afford or be gifted as a teenager with a a small allowance. And in fact, I I still wear this uh, to this day. Some say that it it smells dated uh, or smells like the 90s, but to that I reply, you know, it smells great, period. It's highly distinctive. Uh, It's different from anything on the market currently. And let's be honest, the fact that it's associated with a whole decade should tell you how ubiquitous and impactful this was. You know, perhaps not on the level of something like CK1, but uh, it's definitely up there. So to close out this section, I do want to go with some honorable mentions uh, going to two last items, or really I should say item families. And those are uh, the underwear and the carpenter jeans. So doing research for this episode, uh, I was flooded uh, and hit by uh, so many memories. And going back to that picture of Leah, you know, the tube top obviously sticks out. But seeing the, the Tommy waistband over her jeans, which was also quite iconic, Uh, really helps you understand why this designer was so well-known in the 90s. And the carpenter pants also played very much into that uh, 90s aesthetic. So you had the very prominent logo on the hammer loop and the overall uh, baggy look created by the the cut of the jeans was very much in line uh, with the style of that era. So those are some of the iconic pieces I see from the brand and obviously capped off by the logo itself, which I think to this day is still highly identifiable. So let's now turn to the next section. You know, how have these pieces contributed to the brand's view over time? You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that everything I listed is at least 20 years old. Uh, the heyday of the brand really was in the 90s, uh, along with, you know, Polo Ralph Lauren at the time, uh, but certainly Nautica, right? I mean, that's the trifecta of 90s streetwear brands in my view. And so... My belief is that when people are asked about Tommy Hilfiger or when they think of the brand, really what they're doing is they're going back to that time of Aaliyah, uh, of huge flag logos, of Tommy for Man, Tommy Girl, that type of thing. 
that leads me to be able to tell you why I feel uh, such a personal connection with the brand, because that's the time period that I grew up in. So let's take a look at how Tommy Hilfiger, the brand, has impacted me personally uh, and what effect, if any, it still has on my taste today. Without going into too much unnecessary detail, I have to give you some specifics on my middle school experience, which went from 1995 to 1998. I went to a private school where uniforms were mandated and the student body was split. In one group, you had quote-unquote regular private school kids as you'd picture them. That is to say, students from the area coming from wealthy families. Then you had my group, uh, the expat kids. So this was a partly international school, and uh, that was the group I was in. So we came from families that were for sure, I don't want to you know, put this down or, or dance around it, but for sure we were well off. But we were only in the school because tuition was paid for by the expat package. This was a very expensive school, and uh, we were there because our parents' company sponsored us to be there. So the difference in those two groups ended up being between those who were just well off, and I use that very loosely, versus truly rich. And this actually created quite a bit of tension between the two groups, uh, particularly on the handful of uh, free dress days we had throughout the year during which we could wear whatever we wanted. Without fail, uh, the wealthy kids would have the latest sneakers, the latest uh, clothing, and that's really what I focused on. Now, when you're that age, you don't care about anything like fit uh, or colors and patterns matching. You just want to wear whatever is deemed quote-unquote cool in the hopes that that will get you a seat at the table uh, with the other quote-unquote cool kids wearing those clothes. At the same time, uh, there were Jinko jeans. That was very much in fashion. And there was definitely some rough lawn. I remember seeing some polo shirts here and there. But the one brand that really stood out to me all the time was, you guessed it, Tommy Hilfiger. And in hindsight, it's very easy to understand why that was for uh, three reasons. So remember, this period was uh, huge for streetwear with Tommy Hilfiger playing its own pivotal role. Again, I would put it up there with Nautica and to a lesser extent, Ralph Lauren, but uh, certainly Tommy Hilfiger was maybe the defining brand of that uh, era. So logos were prominent, but Tommy in particular, particular, again, absolutely leaned in to using that flag logo. On any item of clothing, they were numerous and they were bold. And on top of that, the red, white, and blue color scheme of that logo also carried through to the rest of the clothing. So you ended up with garments that were unmistakably uh, Tommy Hilfiger in a way that uh, Ralph Lauren or Nautica just couldn't match, at least in my mind. And so that led to the, the fact that I realized, which, which was that the emphasis on logos was perfect for me. It was as loud a billboard as I could possibly hope for to signal to the people I thought were the cool kids that, hey, I'm cool too. I'm one of uh, you all, and uh, I want to be able to join your group. So from almost my first exposure to Tommy Hilfiger, I was obsessed as one could be about the brand, uh, given that I was a preteen uh, with no money of their own in the early days of the dial-up internet. And I remember very clearly that there was a, a shop and message board called Designers Direct. And on the internet time machine, there is a snapshot of this, which I'll post in the show notes. But I would look at this every day because the site sold Tommy clothing. And there was one jacket in particular that had uh, Tommy Hilfiger with the crest written up the left sleeve and uh, a Tommy flag uh, on the back of the um, of the collar. And again, this is one of those things where I can describe it, but if you look at a picture, which I'll try and link to in the show notes, you'll look at that and say, yes, I know exactly which one you're talking about. And I lusted after that jacket because, again, it was so 
unmistakably Tommy Hilfiger. Unfortunately, it took a while for me to get that jacket, even though I did eventually get it, because it was about $150, and this is in 1995 money. Uh, and again, I had no money at all. So inflation was irrelevant. I just didn't have anywhere close to 150 bucks. That's not to say I couldn't make any headway on building up uh, a collection, though. So my collection of Tommy gear really started out with the cologne and grew slowly, thanks to some savings and birthday gifts, uh, to include a collection of... Uh, jeans, sweaters, especially the the carpenter jeans I mentioned earlier, uh, t-shirts, and even a couple of jackets, including the one that uh, I wanted for what seemed like years on Designers Direct. If I had any rationale regarding what I purchased at any given time, uh, it was the following. So again, I had very little money, so I bought what I could afford. Uh, It was definitely quantity over quality, and frankly, if it had a logo somewhere, that was good enough for me. The other kind of piece of that rationale was that uh, if choice came down to multiple items, so if I had money to buy, to afford you know, a choice of several things, the one with the most logos usually won. Uh, again, I didn't care too much about size. I didn't even think of fit as a concept. And frankly, at the time, loose and baggy was in, so that's what I gravitated to. But I have to say that in hindsight, I must have looked ridiculous because when I uncovered a lot of these clothes years later, they were mediums, they were large. And remember, I was only 12 at the time. So they must have been enormous on me. I don't even wear a large now. So I wore this all through high school uh, and eventually you know, moved on when the cool kids turned to Abercrombie and American Eagle. But the brand still had a profound impact on me. For one thing, this was my first experience with using clothes to signal something, you know, other than just covering me up. And here's another interesting fact that actually I remembered as I was cleaning out uh, my closet the other day. It's that I actually kept all of the flag hang tags from everything I bought. So these were cardboard, just kind of clothing tags that I would put in a box every time I would uh, acquire another piece of Tommy Hilfiger clothing. And I have to say that seeing that just gave me this huge, huge shot of uh, nostalgia. And really, even now, uh, hearing about or seeing anything related to Tommy Hilfiger brings back that same feeling of nostalgia for when times were much, much simpler than they are now. So at this point, you know, maybe you're asking yourself, why I only kept the hang tags? Why do I not have the clothes? Well, sizing is one thing, but that gets us into the final part of the show where I'll cover my current view of the brand and uh, where I think it might be headed in the future, both in kind of a general sense and as it relates to my own personal style choices. As I'm talking about this section, I have to be pretty clear that there's two aspects to this. I've mentioned in past episodes that when I give these types of assessments, I really like to start with an established fact base and then I make assessments and judgments based off of that. I think here it's gonna be quite different. I mean, the goal with these episodes, even though I wanna make sure I'm as factual as I can be, is not to do deep uh, deep dives in things like financials. At the same time, uh, I wouldn't be giving you the whole story if I didn't uh, present at least some of that. And it's important for me to mention that because I think the financial picture is very different from the picture I see as an individual who has had a very long and kind of personal history with this brand. So from a financial standpoint, what I could find was actually very positive. Uh, I'll link to the the CEO's kind of overview of the latest earning results I could find uh, for 3Q 2019. This was back in November, I believe. And uh, overall, the company seems to be doing really well, uh, again, as a division of uh, Philips Van Heusen. So apparently revenue was uh, $1.2 billion. It was up 10% year over year. 
this is extremely positive. Uh, and I believe, and again, I haven't done the, the deep research on this, but that this is buoyed by the uh, the European kind of territory. So if you recall back to the first part of the uh, part of the episode, the initial or the kind of the turnaround that happened, I guess you could say at the kind of early part of uh, the first decade of the millennium came from looking at the European operations. So the design, the marketing, uh, distribution presumably as well. And, and I think that Europe still has a very positive influence on the brand. So when I'm providing my assessment, which I'm just about to get to, uh, it is very much from the point of view of someone who's lived with the brand from the American standpoint. And from that standpoint, I'll just get right to it and say that unfortunately, I, I don't see a lot of room realistically for me to wear a Tommy Hilfiger in my day-to-day activities. And indeed, it's hard for me to find the narrative in, in which the brand really stands out today again, in the American marketplace. It might be very well known, but is it as much of an icon as it was before? I don't think so. And so let's unpack that, you know, first starting with the brand. Now, in uh, the course of the research that I was doing for this episode, one of the articles uh, mentioned that it's, it's very difficult for Tommy Hilfiger now because they never kept on a consistent line. So if you think about what the brand started out as, it was selling preppy with a twist, which at the time was very different. So Ralph Lauren was very straight-laced, and Tommy Hilfiger came in and you know, had some playful colors, you know, accents around buttonholes, things like that. In the mid-90s then, uh, when you went into this uh, kind of streetwear golden age, you had very large flags, uh, very vibrant colors. I mean, the look changed entirely. From that point, you had overexposure of the brand. Uh, you know, they pivoted, they've changed, they're on a better course now, and, and they're back to preppy. Now, compare that to Ralph Lauren. For sure, you know, this was the straight-laced brand. Absolutely, they have dabbled in sports and streetwear. So you've got the Snow Beach collection, you've got the 92 Stadium collection, you know, the P-Wings. Uh, but the through line, so the thing that people always think of when they hear the words Ralph Lauren and Polo uh, is, is preppy. I mean, it's been consistent throughout the life of the brand, and Tommy Hilfiger just does not have that, in my opinion. Having said that, Tommy Hilfiger has, since you know the, the turnaround time, and I would say that maybe despite its lack of a through line, it has done some really, really uh, interesting things in terms of you know staying relevant and, and maybe even trying to break through to different types of customers. So the first thing that you see very clearly um, are the partnerships with uh, you know, young stars such as uh, Zendaya and Lewis Hamilton. Uh, there's kind of two things here that are really worth mentioning. The first one is, you know, again, a commitment to diversity, uh, which, which is great. I think it's been a, a constant throughout the, the company. I mean, design's notwithstanding. And again, it just it, it puts into perspective how wrong these rumors were. But this commitment to diversity, this commitment to being involved with what was young and what's uh, you know kind of cool to the, the the young generation shows up in these um, in these sponsorships and in these endorsements. But the the one in particular is Lewis Hamilton because even though I wouldn't say that it's necessarily uh, news to have a star partner with a fashion brand, the fact that Lewis Hamilton is in the F1 world, to me, is quite significant because it does open the brand up to a highly international and presumably very wealthy crowd, just based on what I understand of of the F1 audience demographic. So it's certainly a shrewd move, as I see it, from from the part of Tommy Hilfiger, the brand. Another thing I find really interesting from the brand is its introduction of adaptive clothing. So for people um, with physical disabilities. I think this is something that not a lot of companies have uh, tried to do. Uh, maybe the closest thing I can think of was Abercrombie released uh, a line of gender-neutral gender clothing 
a few years back, so certainly not the same, but uh, again, plays into this idea of uh, inclusion and acceptance, and uh, and I think this is great. I mean, I, I can't say for sure how big the the niche is, but for Tommy Hilfiger to to make a move into this area, I think is great. If it means that more people can feel comfortable in the clothing they wear and feel like they look good, uh, I think this is fantastic. And uh, sort of along the same lines of the Zendai and Lewis Hamilton collaborations, I think the theme is openness and acceptance, and uh, and that's great. If I look at the Instagram. Uh, following, I think just to sort of tile these things together, the brand has 13.6 million followers. Uh, I couldn't say if, um, you know, if this is something that is makes it the largest kind of follow brand on Instagram, but certainly I would say it's um, it's nothing to, to sneeze at, and, uh, and certainly it points to the ongoing popularity of the brand, uh, at least amongst those who are on Instagram. You know, having said all of this, you know, these are great moves, but kind of, those are very discrete things, right? It doesn't really translate to what uh, the company means or what the brand means really in this current era of fashion and uh, streetwear. And this is really where I think uh, the company has either kind of missed the boat or even deliberately stayed off it. Uh, But certainly I think its place in the modern uh, streetwear era needs to be talked about. So for one thing, the brand definitely seems to have sidestepped uh, the current street or movement. And again, that may have been intentional since they went all in the 90s and then got left behind afterwards. But still, I haven't seen any current uh, fit pics, you know, just this is generally now, right? Like so uh, street photography or things like that with so much as an accent piece. And, and that's despite the logo still featuring heavily in certain items of clothing. So when you see, you know, bloggers or you see people out on the street wearing uh, Balenciaga or Louis Vuitton or whatever it is, there's no Tommy Hilfiger there. It only shows up in the company's official Instagram feed. And I don't know if that's because the company didn't go into it enough or it's just because people are just choosing to wear other things. Along that same line, uh, the company never sought out, um, you know, super, super hype collaborations like uh, Ralph Lauren did with Palace. I, I don't know uh, that, you know, I don't know if this is something, again, if it was intentional or just there was no kind of willing partner, but it, it never actually happened. And this is now speculation, but I'm not sure that if it had, it would have generated quite the buzz of the uh, Ralph Lauren uh, Palace collection, which basically flew off the shelves. And I think now, especially for some of the pieces like the, you know, the kick-flipping uh, polo bear, or trading for many multiples of what they sold for. So I don't know if that was intentional or if you know they wanted to and it didn't happen, but again, uh, just shows the company has uh, been sitting out of the current uh, streetwear era. And finally, if we talk about Tommy Hilfiger as it relates to streetwear, the company, as far as I know, or the brand rather, never had the equivalent of the Ralph Lauren low heads. Now this is something I'll, I'll probably talk about when I get to Ralph Lauren. Uh, when I do the same type of episode, but this is a group that was diehard Ralph Lauren, only wore Ralph Lauren uh, back in the the mid-90s, and that's still a part of their identity today. And to not have that uh, sort of core audience wearing your clothes and growing with you and maybe even passing on to their kids or other people in their social circle, uh, I wouldn't say helps it in terms of keeping it relevant in the current streetwear conversation. More generally speaking, and now going going to to me as as far as how the brand relates to me personally, looking at their current offerings, though I do find a lot of the items truly nice looking, you know, for some reason, I just don't feel any kind of pull. It's like I can find something that 
satisfies uh, my wants just a little bit better uh, elsewhere, be that in design, you know, features, quality, um, anything. You know, nowadays consumers have almost endless choice and they will gravitate towards brands uh, with the most solid identities to which they can relate. So if the logo isn't meant to be a part of the design as heavily now, um, is it enough just to be nice clothing? You know, is it enough to be a brand that just makes clothing that, yeah, looks kind of fun and playful uh, with a logo on it? I mean, then you just become kind of another brand amongst others. So what is it that you're actually stand for? Or rather, how is it that you're standing out uh, given that so many other brands are fighting for space on, on people's bodies? Again, there's some caveats. Overseas, the brand could be doing very well. Uh, and in fact, again, the European operations, I think, are probably still a model uh, for the, the, uh, the American operations. Then the focus on adaptive clothing, I think, is huge and should be uh, commended by the brand. But, you know, it's possible as well that I have this outlook towards the brand now in the sense that I don't wear it as much or at all, really, because it's possible that I associate the brand so strongly with uh, my, my youth. And so I have trouble wearing it as an adult. And so what that means is that while I do like the look of, of a lot of the stuff on the site, at 35 years old, it's just easier for me to go with a more serious, less playful polo equivalent, which, let's face it, may be you know, the most acceptable brand name to, to wear in the office as a, as a professional man. And I find this sad. You know, I want to wear more Tommy, but it's just not me at the time. Aside from the Tommy cologne, which will always be with me, uh, and aside from the fact that it is super fun to, to spend, you know, a half hour or so on Grailed looking at the pieces that I used to lust after uh, when I was a young child. So what do you think? Did you also wear Tommy in the 1990s? Do you still wear it now? Do you not wear it and uh, feel like you're being held back for some reason? How do you think the brand stacks up now to comparable brands such as Ralph Lauren? I'd love to hear from you in the comments. And I'd also love to hear from you uh, what you think about uh, this current format and whether it's something you'd like to hear more of in the future. As always, I invite you to leave a review, whether it's good or bad, along with your feedback in the comments section. And if you want to stay notified of the latest goings on with the show, uh, please do subscribe to get those notifications. If you want to send me an email directly, you're welcome to do that. The email address for the show is closetandpocket at gmail.com. I'll put that down in the show notes. I want to thank you so much again for joining me here on this first episode of the second season. And I look forward to catching up with you next time on episode two.